I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming out, especially the week of spring break, you know, and sometimes you're swinging a miss as a pastor. And as we go into next Sunday, you know, especially with the um, upcoming seminar, don't let that deter you. Now, you're here today, and if you're a part of our church family on the phone system, you know that I, Wednesday, invited you to come out and dialogue with me on a very sensitive subject, very difficult to talk about subject, and, uh, but that demands a response from the church in love. And today, I wanted to take it deeper, and then we're going to dialogue with it one additional time uh, this Wednesday night. And, you know, as a church body and me as a pastor... Sometimes the culture creates a climate that oftentimes moves in its, you know, climate seeks to move inside the church to a degree, and it forces the church to have a response. And anytime the church has a, has a response, you want to always be, uh, you know, you want to respond in love because God is love. Number two, though, truth must be embraced in order for you to find true correction in your life and be who God's called you to be. It's, it's pivotable, and we have, to, we have to hold to it, and we have to not shy away from bringing the truth even when the culture is pre presenting a distorted perception of the truth, right? And the subject matter that, I'm, that I talked about Wednesday and I'm talk about now... I'm giving you some precursors here real quickly. Oftentimes, whenever I share something that's very piercing like this is to a degree, or, you know, that's a very right to the heart of a subject matter, a difficult subject matter, people that may be, have it struggled with this or it's part of their life or something, they think, well, that pastor's trying to target me. <laughs> I don't know who's going to be here week by week. You know, I don't preach to people in that sense. I preach a principle, okay? And that principle is irregardless of whether you're here or whether you're not here. And I, everything's being recorded. And I hope it's already being recorded because I, I want this available online and through CD so that you could, if, you're, if you want to share what I'm talking about with somebody in your family or someone that you're close to that you've had dialogue with, because we're going to talk about today at first, I was calling this the church's response, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to narrow it some. First assembly's response to the live-in generation. First assembly's response to the live-in generation. And let me take a moment uh, to just pray with you, and then I'm, just, I'm just going to dive right in. And we're going to open our hearts up, and we know God's going to instruct us in righteousness. Come on, in righteousness. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We're grateful for the Word of God. Come on, aren't we grateful for the Word of God? Help, Father, today, help us to learn. Help us to be studious. Help us to be taught. God, let the word come freely and with conviction in this house today. For every person, God, as a part of this fellowship, those that are visitors, those that are adherents, God, let us be distinctly different from the world. Have a conviction that's born of biblical truth, God, and unashamed of it, God, and yet walk in love and be reminded that we hold forth the word of life to a crooked and a perverse generation, as Philippians 2 says. And we pray that today, God, that there'll be understanding as it relates to this subject. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. amen. Now, I, I also, you know, for live-in generation, you can simply use the term cohabitation. Now, I don't know if anybody has, has realized that the extreme 
increase in the in the uh, the freedom of which people are entering into cohabitation versus marriage in today's time, and you'll see that it has literally quantum leaped in the last 40 years in the United States, and it's being embraced by our culture and even embraced by many that are active in the church. And out of love today, I want to compete with the ideology that someone has in their mind that, number one, it's acceptable for God. And number two, it's just a prelude to marriage. Now, one of the most liberal of all uh, newspapers, the New York Times, uh, actually shared an article that revealed the... Um, I'll wait for just a second. It could be God calling. <laughs> Saying, preach it, brother. Preach it. Come on, somebody. Just... Uh, Let's, let's go ahead and draw the line real quickly. If your phone's not on silent, turn it on silent for me right now, okay? And I always double-check that before you come into the sanctuary. In 1960, in the United States, there were 450,000 unmarried couples living together in 1960. By 2014, there were 7.5 million couples. That's a 1,500% increase. Now... The only time you want to see increases like that is, number one, maybe through church attendance, or number two, if you are invested in some type of stock or bond. Apart from that, so when I say quantum leap, I'm not talking about double or triple. 1,500 times in that 40-some-odd-year period of time. In the 2001, so now that would have even changed even more since then, there was a survey amongst 20-somethings. Now, let me just say this. The, the, the cohabitation, which I'll define that. Let me go ahead and define that for you. If you go online and, and you define this, Merriam-Webster, whatever, here's what's going to come up. It's, it's, cohabitation is defined as the state of living together and having a sexual relationship without being married. Now, oftentimes, there are those couples that are kind of connected to the church that they will say, listen, we're living together, but we're not sleeping together. Now, my response to that is, is that George Strait sang a song several years ago that kind of is a rebuttal to that, but it is there's some oceanfront property in Arizona that we want you to purchase if you want us to believe that you and your girlfriend are passing each other in the bathroom in the mornings. I'll be real with you here today, okay? And there, come on, two dry sticks rubbed together is eventually going to spark. Come on now. And so we're not buying that here today. So we want to help you. We want to help. But it's not just young adults. Let's go ahead. The survey was to the 20-somethings, but it's not just young adults. It's, it's uh, middle-aged. It's my age. And I know, I know you're thinking, Pastor, I thought you were a young adult. I know. I know. Let me go ahead and clarify that in case you're a visitor here today. I know. I know. I'm not. And so, but I have six children that are millennials, 19 to 28 years of age. And so, I'm, I'm involved. I'm more involved in, in, in speaking with uh, the young adult generation than I've ever been in my life because I'm seeing many of the ICM, former ICM students are now in adulthood, young adulthood. And so, they're reaching out and they're needing help. They need instruction. They need encouragement. They need direction. We want to provide that sound wisdom, Right ready to be received. So they were surveyed and half agreed that, only, that they would only marry someone that they lived with first. So around half of those that were surveyed agreed that that was their intention, that they, that was their intention. It didn't just accidentally happen. They intended to only marry someone that they had lived with first. And two-thirds believed that moving in before marriage would prevent or avoid divorce. 
So in their heart, I suppose, or their mind, some of them thought, well, if I do this, then it's going to give me the possibility for a greater long-term relationship in marriage. But oddly enough, studies show that 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 is not the case, and it's called the cohabitation effect. And this is the byproduct of living together, that couples that have lived together prior to marriage tend to be less satisfied with their marriage, number one, and number two, more likely divorce than couples who do not. So even statistics presented to us by one of the most liberal newspapers in the United States recognize that this growing trend may not come out with the outcome that many people think it will. Now, the church needs a response. Come on, church fan. We need a biblical conviction. So let me take a minute. I want to talk about marriage for just a second. Sister Sherry and I, this May, will have been married 31 years, and I'm so grateful. I got married as a young man. I'm talking 17 years of age. I waited till my high school graduation ceremony was over and got married that night. I'm the only person in the world that I know that that has happened to. I'm sure it's probably not. It's the only one that I know about. I have zero regrets. I'm very grateful. We grew together. We loved together. We raised a beautiful family together, and it taught us the value of marriage. Come on. It taught us the value of a, of a, of a sanctity in a home and to see that principle passed to our children and one day to our children's children. And as a pastor... Let me tell you, if you say, well, pastor, if you could take me into scriptures and show me, you know, about, first of all, let's just talk about, you know, the biblical marriage or even when the ceremony itself. Well, you know, oddly enough, as I came into faith and and have been to many marriages, there's not an actual biblical, uh, you know, like I can't take you to the book of Numbers, Old Testament, or the book of 1 Corinthians, New Testament, and say, here is uh, a wedding ceremony, and this is exactly how God said to do it. No, it's not in here. And so what we do is we extract biblical principle that makes it applicable to what we believe is every part of our lives, including marriage. And we also use a reference point to the, to the history of the Jewish people because we have, we're grafted into the olive tree and they were distinct from the Gentiles and distinct from the world and God gave them wisdom. And if you study the Jewish history, you'll know there was a betrothal period or an engagement period. And, and with that, uh, is it betrothal? I often get it mistaken. I, I went online twice to get the pronunciation right this morning. So I wouldn't mess it up when I got here. An engagement period, we'll use this, where there was an, a, a, an arrangement that was made and then that there would be a follow-on marriage. We even see that in Jesus' mother and father because before um, Joseph and Mary, while she was betrothed to Joseph, that's when she was found to be with child by the Holy Ghost. But Joseph did not put her away, but he still took her unto himself as his wife. But the Bible says he did not know her, even though he had married her, he did not know her until she brought forth her firstborn son to fulfill the word in Isaiah that he would be born of a virgin, right? So let's go further. So we see that in the scriptures, in the the biblical uh, precedences that parents are involved. Now, we are a broken generation, and many times the young adults don't have a close connection with their parents. But let me tell you, if at all possible, uh, young adult, uh, listen to some of the counsel your parents are giving you. Come on, listen. They've got your best interest at heart. I'm not saying they're always right. Sometimes they can be wrong. That's true. But, but always respect them. Man, I'll stay here all day if I need to. Come on, church. I can't believe that I just told young adults to respect the desires of their parents, or at least respect their advice, and I got one person to say amen in this house. Are y'all out of your mind this morning, church family? You do not want to be disrespected by your young adult. 
You want your child to value the investment that you've made in their life since birth until they're now entering into their own covenant of marriage. So respect them. Number three, there were preparations made by the man from the betrothal until the time of marriage. According to the practice of the Jews, the man went off to prepare a house oftentimes on the side of his father's house. That's where we get the biblical, uh, you know, allegory of Jesus' teaching. In my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare you a place that where I am, you may be there also. He's the bridegroom, we're the bride. He went back to heaven prepared preparing us a place. He's going to come for us one day, right? So that's that principle. Then there's a wedding, and the wedding involved a ceremony. Ceremonies can be small or large. They're different traditions. But at that ceremony, the most important thing is an oath, an oath that is exchanged at that particular ceremony. In today's time, in the presence of witnesses, And where I want to take you just real quickly in the context of marriage, if we're going to really learn about where the heartbeat of what marriage should be like, you have to go back to the Genesis. Even Jesus himself, when he was confronted about divorce in his generation, divorce for any cause, remember what Jesus did, Matthew 19? He said, in the beginning, it was not so. So to learn a lot of truths about marriage, go back to the beginning. Adam went to sleep. Adam was single and he was contented and God said, it is good. But there came a part of of Adam's life, came a day when God looked upon Adam and said, it's no longer good that he should be alone. So he caused a sleep to fall upon him and as he slept, God reached his hand, drew a a rib out of his side, made a woman. And Adam opened up from his sleep or woke up from his sleep. God had performed surgery on him while he slept. And lo and behold, the most beautiful of all creation stood in front of him. And he said, whoa, man, come on, somebody, amen. And I'll tell you what, he had looked at birds and he had looked at at tigers and the lion and he had looked at everything else and all of a sudden coming through the garden. Come on, that's the way it should be. God should bring. God can bring your spouse to you, young adult. Wait on him. You don't have to go find him. Don't go down to the electric cowboy looking for your spouse. Come on, he's not going to be dancing on a table somewhere. Listen, find your spouse at the house of God. Wait on God. Wait on God to provide it. Man, I feel the Holy Ghost in here today. And Jesus said, and so I, you know what? I think you have to look a little bit about what Jesus did in validating marriage for just a moment. Let me pull that out just real quickly. Number one, Joseph and Mary, uh, you know, honored the marriage covenant. Joseph did not know her till Jesus was born. Jesus' first miracle was at the wedding of Cana. Jesus used the wedding, the wedding party, the bride and the bridegroom to teach principles that related to the kingdom of God. And when Jesus was confronted with, again, divorce for any cause, he went back to Genesis to validate the, the marriage. And you say, well, was there witnesses there? Yes, there were witnesses. God was there. Adam and his wife were there, and the angels were there. Read the book of Job. The angels were looking down at creation and applauding God. When there was not a man to give God glory, the angels said, i got to give God glory for the beauty of his creation. So the angels themselves were standing there watching as this man, because Adam said an oath that day. There was an oath that was, an oath is a part of covenant. An oath is the giving of your word. An oath is your promise. He said, this is now. When Eve came walking to him in the garden, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I'll leave father and mother. Men will leave father and mother and cleave unto our wives. 
right? It's a covenant exchange of words there in the Genesis, and that's an important part. And that contrasts the live-in generation, which there's no binding oath. I believe an oath is binding. It should be binding and be validated in the presence of God and in the presence of witnesses. Number five, he received his wife into his house that he had provided for her. And number six, there was a consummation. Oh, my God, this is the worst amen saying church in the history of Lord Jesus. I said there was a consummation of the marriage. At least all the men ought to stand up and say, thank God. Come on, somebody. Right? It's okay to talk about sexuality in the covenant of marriage. There was a consummation. And let me tell you a little bit about this, about the consummation according to the way God's original design. And I know there's a lot of things that, that, that prevent that from happening in our generation. But did you know God intended that the consummation of the marriage between one man and one woman to be a blood covenant? If you've never studied it out, some have, some have not. But upon the first penetration into the vaginal lining by a man, it's the actual breaking of what's called the hymen. And when the hymen releases blood, the blood flows over the man's sexual organ, thereby forming a covenant. And that's where God said two are becoming one flesh right there. It's a blood covenant. That's the way God intended marriage to be. Come on, somebody. Consummated through that union and that validates the oath that was made made in the presence of God and in the presence of people. It's a precious thing, and it should be valued in our culture. But unfortunately, the world is not valuing it. And then lastly, in that sense, is that in the New Testament, what we would call New Covenant marriage, there's all kinds of instruction given by the apostles for husbands and wives. 1 Corinthians 7, Titus chapter number 2, 1 Timothy chapter number 2, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 3. Yes, husbands and wives, it's our responsibility to educate ourselves. To learn the word of God. What does God require me as a husband? What does God require of you as a wife? How can two come together but they be in agreement? Right? And there has to be an agreement in the relationship. The greatest principle of this, uh, of this evolving relationship between a man and a woman is Ephesians 5 verse number 33. Where a woman is taught to reverence or respect her husband. And a man is taught to love his wife. Those are the two greatest desires in the heart of both men and women. For women to be loved. And to be appreciated, come on, and to be cherished and to be honored as a special gift from God. And for men to be respected, held in esteem by their wives. Come on, a man needs to be able to lift his chest up just a little bit, right? Square his shoulders back, walk with his head held high because to her, to his wife, come on, that's my man right there, right? That's the way God intended for it to be. And it's a, it can be a special thing. And there can be joy in the house. Come on, there can be. But the world is selling. The world is selling something that's counterfeit. That doesn't produce the desired effect. And many, even in the church, are buying into it. But I come along to contrast that today. To stand against it in faith. Let's talk about sexual sin for just a moment. Can we do that? Sexual sin. Because it's my belief that that sex outside of marriage is sin. Now, let me just validate it according to the law real quickly. The Mosaic law, the Torah to the Jew, that actually listed distinct um, types of sexual sin. Adultery, sex between two married people, right, in a different relationship. 
Fornication, sex by two unmarried persons. We'll talk about that more in a moment. The Bible plainly called bestiality sin. King James English, New Te- or King James, yet also Old Covenant bestiality, it's sin. Don't be laying with an animal. Rape. Incest. Come on. Intermarriage with pagans. Sexual intercourse during menstrual cycle. Did you know it was in the scriptures? Deuteronomy teaches that principle, calls it sin. Uh, Certain types of polygamy. The reason why? Polygamy in and of itself, what we would call normal. (laughs) Normal polygamy is neither condemned nor permissible in Scripture. The Scripture's mute on it. The type that the Scripture does condemn is when a man married a wife and her mother. Oh, Oh, shatakai, I'm going to see it. Thank God that was labeled sin. Come on, somebody. Come on, man. That's the best I could do for you right there. I need some help in here today. <laughs> but now, listen, the pen, listen, this is the penalty. And then harlotry. Harlotry was just that continual sexual expression. The penalty for almost all sexual sin, if discovered, was death, according to the Mosaic Law. Now, I understand, and Jesus brought us mercy and grace at a level that was not seen in the law. Right? Jesus didn't come to condemn. He came to save. Right? We're not here with stones in our hand today. I understand. But we're here with truth in our hearts to share. Because you get that truth inside you, it'll change your life. And, but it demands a response. Once you get confronted by the truth, I shared on Wednesday night, we're all so quick to bring up in John chapter number 8. John chapter number 8, Jesus was faced with the woman that was caught in adultery. Remember that? And Jesus would not condemn her. And he said, he that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. And no man condemned her. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's a powerful principle. But what if she continued in that cycle of sin? What would the response be? See, we're living in a generation where it's a continual cycle. And the continual cycle is demanding a response. And so here we are gathered on a Sunday morning and I'm talking about our response to the living generation because it's only growing. And we've got to have a biblical response because that will set people free. The truth, once embraced in their hearts, will set them free, right, to live holy before God. Did you know uh, uh, almost all sexual sin, if discovered under the Mosaic law, the penalty was death except for fornication, The single act of fornication, if it was discovered, could be rectified or ransomed by paying 50 shekels of silver to the father of the woman, and then they can marry. Deuteronomy 22 records it. He would not be permitted to divorce her at any time for the rest of his life. Now, continual fornication would be considered whoredom or harlotry and could result in death. And so in the New Testament, in the King James English, the most references to sexual immorality is called fornication or fornicators, correct? Now, that's not a term that many people use on a regular basis uh, except for those that are trained in King James English. But it simply means sexual immorality. Its broader definition is, is a sexual sin of various natures and types. But for the sake of today, I'm dealing almost exclusively with sex outside of marriage between two unmarried individuals. 
So you understand that that's, what, that's the playing field we're on today because that's what we're being confronted with on a regular basis. And in most cultures, adultery is looked down upon with shame in most cultures. Even non-Christianized cultures, are looked, adultery is often condemned, right? But in some cultures, fornication to a degree is acceptable as it is in America today. But let me make this statement. What is culturally acceptable is not necessarily biblically permissible. And that's what we've got to do is to, we have to define what we believe and be reminded of the principles of Scripture. I want to go to the Scriptures for a moment. 1 Thessalonians 4. Would y'all turn there with me today? Can y'all stay with me? It's 1148. I'm right there. I'm okay. Don't get nervous. I'm not going to preach too long. But what I've got to say needs to be said. What you're hearing needs to be heard. Come on, church family. Listen, we, we want to see men and women living holy lives before God. I want to see men and women being blessed in their family. There's no greater blessing than to walk with the blessing of God upon your family. To see your children and your children's children take the principles of faith that you walked in and worked out in your own life and see them pick up the baton, I'm telling you, you'll die a happy old person. Come on, somebody. Amen. That's what we want to see. And so the only way for us to see it is we have to teach it. Well, one of the things that all of us, no matter uh, whether you are a young adult or whether you are a, uh, an aging adult, listen, you got to guard yourself from sexual sin. Let's just ask ourselves, does Paul address this issue? 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Finally then, brethren, we urge and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more. That's what we want for you. And that you uh, should receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. Right? That's the desire here today is that you would learn how to walk and to please God. That you'll learn how to walk holy before God. And I want to encourage you, don't check out on me mentally. Don't walk away from the truth today and just hear and listen to what God, God's speaking to every one of us in this room through his word. He said, this is for you to learn. She said, you got to know what commandments, what, what? I thought commandments were just in the Old Testament. These are commandments from God. Come on, right? This is the will of God, third verse, your sanctification. So here's the will of God for every young or every adult that's not married, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. King James would say fornication, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. The apostle Paul wrote again in 1 Corinthians 7, we won't go there. He said, nevertheless, he said, to avoid fornication, to avoid fornication, let every man have her, his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. So to avoid fornication, if you find yourself not being able to restrain your flesh, then the Bible says the, the outlet for you is to get married, right? To enter into that covenant of marriage. Hebrews 13 and 4, I would like to put this up on the screen. This will probably be the last. No, there will be one other passage, and that's all. Hebrews 13 and 4. We're going to read this one. It says, and if they can put it on there, they will, but I'm going to read it. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed is undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Look at this. Marriage is honorable, and the bed is undefiled. 
See, because if you are a believer and you have a conviction, you cannot have sexual intercourse with someone who is your, uh, your, your, your live-in partner and not be grieved about it. If you have a genuine conviction of the Holy Spirit residing in you, your spirit's going to be grieved because that's not the will of God for you. And you can't have peace about getting in the bed with him or getting in the bed with her every night. You can't have peace and ask God to bless your sexual union. You can't have peace. You can't pray, Father, let my sexual appetite be gratified in my... Because they're not your wife or they're not your husband or your spouse. They're not. So you can't say, in my partner. That doesn't work in the eyes of God because God demands an oath. God demands a commitment. But I'm telling you, in the covenant of marriage, then in your heart, you can pray, Father, let my sexual appetite be gratified only in my spouse. Will our union be blessed? The Bible says, drink water out of your own cistern. The Bible says, be satisfied with the breast of the wife of your youth. Right? I believe that it can be a holy sanctified moment. I believe that every time you come together again as a husband and wife, you're reminding yourself of your original commitment that you made years ago. I found the word come together used in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 about the sexual intimacy of a man and woman. It's the same reference that Paul wrote to the church about coming together for communion in 1 Corinthians 11. So when we come together for communion to break the bread and to take of the juice, we're doing so to remind ourselves of the covenant that God made with Christ that we entered in through the cross. Right? It's holy, it's sacred, it's sanctified, and we celebrate it. And every time a husband and wife come together sexually, they're do- and doing so, they are reminding themselves of that day that they stood in front of First Assembly and said, I do wed, or I thee wed. Come on. It's a reminder of that covenant, and it's blessed by God. It's undefiled, the Scripture said. It's sanctified. You don't have to get up from your sexual union with your spouse and, and with your heart heavy. Right? You don't have to have a sense of remorse or condemnation or grief, but you can go up and say, thank God for my beautiful husband or my beautiful wife. I know I'm preaching to a few folks that, Pastor, I remember those days. Listen, get the old spice out. Come on, somebody. Well, don't let that candle go out. Keep that flame a-burning. Don't get me started. There's a lot of tools in our generation. How do I know that? Because I watch the football game and they advertise them on there all the time. Listen, let's go a little bit farther. The live-in cohabitation generation, I got a few more minutes, don't cut me off, is bringing judgment upon themselves because of the rejection of biblical truth. They're bringing judgment. Because here's what it said. In 1 Corinthians 6, I believe it's verse number 18, it says that if you commit sexual sin, you sin against your own body. You're sinning against your own body. You're harming yourself in the process. You're robbing yourself of the satisfaction that can come in the sexual union. You're robbing yourself of the emotion of celebration without condemnation and grief because you're not, you've not entered into that, that holy covenant of marriage. Right? So it's bringing condemnation upon yourself. It's bringing judgment upon yourself. It's opening yourself up to the enemy's attack on your life. 
right, to which often there's no defense. There's no defense because of the decisions that you're making. And so here's where the problem is that I'm having, and this is what Wednesday night was all about, and this is what we're discussing and dialoguing. Did you know Paul actually addressed in 1 Corinthians 5 that if there's a continual activity of fornication in, in a couple or individuals in the church, that you're eventually going to have to arrive at a place where you put that person away from the fellowship? That's strong. And the desire is always to reconcile. The desire is to lead that person to conviction. See, we're the generation that doesn't want any consequences in the house of God. We're the generation that wants to just come out and dance and come in here and do whatever they want to because you've got to just love me. We can love you even if we are forced to separate ourselves from you. Because if you're influencing us and influencing our children, come on, then we're going to protect the integrity of this house. We're going to protect the integrity of your relationship. And we're going to love you enough to get right down in your business and confront you with the truth and leave you to respond to it. And if you're ever separated from the fellowship, here's what Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15. It said, those that reject this doctrine, then you reject. But don't treat that person as an enemy. Admonish them as a brother. Learn to show love and compassion. But we've got to stop We've got to stop allowing as a fellowship the influence of lifestyles that are not walking in biblical truth. So we've got to find what does put away for us mean in our generation. That's why we're dialoguing on Wednesday night. Because it's got to be done in love. And the principle's got to be maintained not just by me and Jojo and Shane. It's got to be held by the church family. Because we want this to be evangelistic. We want you to be able to bring folks to church to hear the truth. But we want to protect the integrity of the fellowship. So it's a difficult balance to maintain. Is that right? But I'll tell you what, I want to stand guilty before God of doing everything that I can to be biblically correct and reaching out in love to even those that are caught in the vice of fornication. I'm almost through. Let me say this, fornication causes the individual, number one, to sin against their own body. Number two, sex, it's a sexual union that is not blessed or sanctified. And this will grieve you to hear this. But number three, it says that your children, you have to read this on your own, are declared unclean. And that's tough to say, and I don't know what the full application is, but that grieves us. It grieves us. And, and we're in the generation where we're producing child Child, child, child here. And that's not in any way to bring, be condescending to anyone in any way. My, my desire is out of love to stop the train yes. before it runs off the edge. Amen. Marriage is honorable and all. And the bed is undefiled. And your relationships can be blessed. The one thing as I close today, I'll shut the scripture so you'll believe me. Fornication. Can I just talk about that in closing? Fornication. By a brother or sister. And I believe, I'm not saying someone's unsaved. I'm saying they're being deceived by the culture, dominated by their flesh, and they need to be confronted by truth. The Bible says, don't lead your vessels as vessels of dishonor. Lend your vessels as vessels of honor to God. Fornication by a brother or sister can breach our covenant of faith and bring us 
as a fellowship to a degree into a union with, a part, with that partner of fornication. And I know you maybe didn't understand that, but what Paul, when he wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, he's not only trying to protect, there's two things at risk, church. It's not just the individual, it's the fellowship. The individual is at risk of being deceived by the enemy and so therefore entering into that cohabitation thinking it's a prelude to marriage and it actually is going to cause them to not value marriage as greatly as they ought to, right? Number two, because that person is a part of our fellowship, then that brings us to a degree in union with the person that person is sleeping with. Do y'all see that? So that's a very... It's a very difficult thing to navigate its way through. And we've got to, we, as an individual, you should be grieved. You should be grieved when you're affecting the body in a negative way. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians. He said, when you don't discern the Lord's body, many are weak and sickly among you. When you fail to respect not only your body, you sin sinning against your body, but when you fail to respect God's body, Then he said, for this reason, many are weak and sickly among you. So there is a consequence to it. So I urge you out of love in the name of Jesus, go back to the drawing board. Come on, revalue the things that God taught us. Here's what you're instructed. All of us are instructed to glorify God in our body because you know what? You're the temple of the Holy Ghost. You were bought with a price. Is that right? Guard your heart. Guard your body. I want to say this in love. I mean, I got like six more statements and I'm finished. You cannot glorify God in your body and your spirit and live as a fornicator. Is that right? That's right. You cannot. To be a Christian is to follow Christ. And to apply his word. Remember what Jesus said? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I ask you to do? Come on. To be a Christian is to follow Christ, apply his word, which includes the teaching of the gospels and the apostles. The world's system has deceived many into thinking they can live in sexual immorality without consequence. Marriage, then, to them that are deceived is only when you have lived together and supposedly proven whether you are habit habitual or not habitual, habitable, where you go get along with one another. All the while, you're sinning against your own body and this body of believers. So if you're truly a Christian, and I know, and listen, I preached this message knowing it was going to be put on our website and CD, because I want you to be able to give it to people that you love. In love, we have to confront this generation with truth. Come on, in love. We have, and when I say generation, I'm not talking about the young adult generation. I'm just saying this generation must be confronted about the truth. The cohabitation is not the will of God for their lives. They're to flee from fornication. So if you're a genuinely a born-again Christian, let me tell you, if you're genuinely born again, you have two options that God gives you. God gives you two options. Number one, remain single and remain celibate without live-in cohabitation. You can celebrate being single. I've got two children unmarried, and they celebrate being single. Alyssa is sold out 
to, uh, you know, her ministry and her calling, and Austin is too cheap to date. <laughs> so you can live single and be contented until God brings you a spouse. That's your first option if you're single. Is that right? It's okay to be single until God says it's no longer good for you to be single. Until then, be happy and free. Serve the Lord with gladness. Right? No bad breath in the morning but your own. Is that right? Right? So celebrate it until God says it's no longer good for you to be alone. Don't be pulled into the world of cohabitation because the enemy has sold you a lie. I've shown you biblically it is not the will of God. And I will argue this point with anybody. Anybody that you say, Pastor, can we talk to you? Can I bring them in? I'm unashamed. We'll go to the scriptures. I, listen, it, you could bring me the Greek scholar. I wouldn't care. We'll argue the scriptures on this point right here. We'll go back to the Genesis. We'll go back to the beginning. Number two, if you're truly a Christian, your second option is to enter the covenant of marriage. If you avoid fornication, he said, then go get married. If God's led you to the right person, then go, but do marriage the right way. Come on, involve the people that matter, right? Get God's blessing on it. Don't give me this where we're just married in our heart. I don't want to hear that. Listen, you, it takes more. It takes an oath of exchange of words to validate it, and we got to do so according to the laws of the land, right? And it needs a man of God officiating the ceremony, right? So don't play games with us in here in the church. I get so tired that, well, we're married. Well, well we're, I'm waiting on this divorce to go final. I'm waiting on that divorce to go final, but God said we're just married. No, I don't want to hear that. But then live single until that goes final, then you can get married. Amen. Right? You said, Pastor, you're demanding a strong response. Yes, we are demanding a strong response. God so loved you that he laid that heavy wooden beam on the back of his son. He allowed him to be beat. He allowed him to be spit upon. He allowed him to die naked and unashamed so you could be redeemed, set free, make heaven your home, and live for God every day of your life. Yes, we'll put the burden on you of obeying the Word of God. Be who God has called you to be. Won't everybody stand up in here today?